heard of the evangelism strategy known as the Way of the Master with Ray Comfort and Kirk Cameron. Essentially, it's a way to interact with everyday people on the street based on the Ten Commandments. For example, you walk up to a person in your community or in any other scenario and you start up a conversation. And then you start asking them very simple yet very direct questions. Like, have you ever told a lie? If yes, then what does that make you? A liar. Okay, have you ever stolen anything? And if yes, what does that make you? Well, it makes you a thief. Okay, have you ever looked at a man or a woman with lust in your heart? If yes, then what does that make you? Well, it makes you an adulterer. And you say, now, knowing that God is a just judge, which he is, how could he ever let a lying thief and adulterer into heaven? And of course, they agree with your logic, which puts you in a glorious place to point these people to the salvation that is only available in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is a wonderful way to share the gospel. But it's the convicting power of the law. Really coming out of Galatians 3, that the law is a tutor that leads people to the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's not the only way to lead people to Christ. That they would be faithful followers of Jesus who are bold with the gospel, willing to reach out to those who are lost, that they might experience salvation. So not the convicting power of the law, but instead the convicting power of grace. Undeserved kindness, receiving a blessing when you really deserve a curse, the gift of life when what you deserve is death. So in our passage this morning, we're going to see the convicting power of grace at work in the Apostle Peter's life. And my hope and prayer is that the Lord might use his experience to spur us on, number one, to be amazed by grace, Number two, to be faithful followers of Jesus. And number three, to be zealous evangelists who joyfully share the good news of the gospel with others, our friends and our family and our neighbors around us. That we would be zealous to do so. So if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. You'll also notice my outline in your bulletin. title of my sermon this morning is Amazing Grace. Three points that are going to walk us through the passage, sinking boat, saving men, and savoring Christ. Luke chapter 5, follow along as I read verses 1 to 11. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him, on Jesus, to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, also the Sea of Galilee. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon Peter's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon Peter, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon Peter answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. 
And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon Peter. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Now what's so interesting about this scene as we begin is that the disciples are not even in the crowd. I mean, they're not even listening in on what Jesus is saying, but they're on the outskirts. So, so Jesus brings this crowd over to the shore where there's these two boats. Obviously, the fishermen had just gotten out of them and were washing their nets, which is all very typical, always checking their equipment, fixing and mending the nets. When verse 3 tells us that Jesus suddenly gets into one of the boats, which was Simon Peter's, and he asks to be pushed out a little way from the land. Now again, Peter's on the outside of the crowd, but I think he would have liked this arrangement very much. Now why do I say that? Well, because the roles are really clear, right? Peter is the fisherman, and Jesus is the teacher. So Peter drives the boat, that's what fishermen do, and Jesus does the preaching. That's what preachers do. So all is well, and the world is as it should be. Now, I remember being on a missions trip to Lakeside Christian Camp up in the Berkshires. Some of you know that place very well. We were on a missions trip in order to install a cathedral ceiling one summer in their chapel. When I had this hilarious conversation with one of my guys, an adult man about 45 years old at the time, who happened to be a construction manager at IBM. Ran million-dollar projects, construction for IBM. In fact, I actually brought him on the trip specifically to run the cathedral ceiling construction project. That's why he was there. So one day I was on the job site and I started sharing my thoughts on how this cathedral ceiling should be constructed. You know, ways in which I thought he could improve the process, things that could be changed, modifications that could be made. When my friend patiently, yet firmly, said to me, Look, friend, I'm the builder, and you're the preacher. I'll take care of the building. You take care of the preaching. And if we can just keep those things straight, that I'm the builder and that you're the preacher, all will be well, and the world will be as it should be. So at the beginning of our story, everything's fine, right? Peter's the fisherman, Jesus is the teacher. Peter handles the boat, Jesus handles the preaching. Everything's fine, just as it should be. Until Jesus starts meddling 
with the fishing. And he says to a seasoned fisherman, a man with years of experience, let down your nets for a catch. Now notice how he doesn't say, hey, Peter, could you let down your nets for a try? He doesn't say that. It's, it's not a suggestion. Instead, it's a promise. Let down your nets for a catch. Now let me tell you another quick story. Because I have a friend by the name of Fran Abrahamovich. So you know this is a true story. You can't make up a name like that, right? Fran Abrahamovich, right? Back when I was working at IBM. So he, he was a fisherman up in Vermont, Lake Champlain, his entire life. Fran took me out ice fishing on one particular Saturday morning after setting up all of our entire fleet of tip-ups. Do you know what a tip-up is? Some of you don't know what a tip-up is. There's this flag on this, this metal bendy thing, and you tip it over, and it's linked to the string. And so when the fish grabs the string, it lets go of the, the flag, and it pops out. It tips up, and you know that you've got a fish. So in Vermont, Lake Champlain, every single person gets to set up 16 tip-ups per person. Right? So we're out there four people. That's 64 tip-ups. And do you know how Fran sets those up? He pulls up with a trailer and a four-wheeler. And he drives around. Somebody drives the four-wheeler. He's on the back with the auger. And he just drills hole all over the place. And we come behind and we set up 64 tip-ups. Then you know what Fran does? He goes back to the trailer and he gets his grill. And then we have breakfast. We have an egg sandwich out on the ice. And we're sitting there eating breakfast when all of a sudden Fran looks at his watch and he says to me, you better finish up with breakfast because it's going to start in about five minutes. And I, of course, responded, Fran, what are you talking about? He says, fish are going to start biting five minutes. You better get yourself ready. I totally think he's making fun of me. So I say, Okay, Fran, whatever. And then all of a sudden, they hit. There's flags popping up all over Lake Champlain. We're running all over the place, catching fish, pulling them up, throwing them on the ice, running to the next flag, pulling them out, throwing them on the ice. More fish than I've ever caught in my life for 30 minutes. And then just as soon as it started, it stops. Fran looks at me, and he says, let's pack up. I again, you think I would learn, said, Fran, what are you talking about? And he says, it's over. Days like this, overcast and cold, they hit for 30 minutes, and then it's done. Most unbelievable fishing trip of my life. But that's a master fisherman. Now make the connection. Peter's been fishing this lake his entire life. He's a master fisherman, which means he knows the Sea of Galilee like the back of his hand. He knows the depths, the currents, where the fish are, where they're not. He knows when you catch them and he knows when you don't. But here's Jesus saying to a master fisherman who just got out of his boat, let down your nets. For a catch. 
And yet this is the Lord Jesus, right? The Son of God, the agent of creation, the word that went forth in the beginning to create this lake and bring this event into being, the one who formed these fish, their inward parts, and wove them together, who is Lord of every wind and every wave and every tide and controls where the fish live and move and have their being. In fact, this is the Lord Jesus who could have said to the fish, jump into the boat. And they would have done so immediately, without question. So that Lord Jesus says to this Peter, let down your nets for a catch. Therefore, Peter, in my estimation, responds in ignorance and arrogance. Look at me at verse 5. He says, Master, sounds so submissive, doesn't it? Master, We toiled all night, all night, and we took nothing. There's no doubt in my mind that there's attitude here in Peter's voice. Why do I know that? Well, for starters, night was considered the best time for fishing. So you didn't fish during the day. You fished at night. And this master fisherman, this this regional expert, has been fishing all night. And they caught nothing. So throwing the nets back into the water after they just cleaned them was a total waste of time and an act of massive futility. And to make things worse, this suggestion is coming from a carpenter. What in the world does a carpenter know about fishing anyways? Yet Peter's respectful, isn't he? Again, verse 5, but master, at your word, I will let down the nets. But it's obvious, isn't it, that Peter's not convinced Jesus has the best plan here. He's willing, but he's not convinced. He obeys, but it's a half-hearted obedience. And can't you relate? I mean, isn't that our tendency? To doubt the wisdom, the sovereignty, the miracle-working power of Jesus? I mean, he tells us, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you, including food and shelter and clothing, and yet we're convinced we have to take care of ourselves, and we're anxious, aren't we, all the time as to whether or not we'll be okay. Then we're told, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, prevents your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. But do we pray? Well, maybe. Maybe a half-hearted prayer. Hey, Lord, think you could help me out here. If not, I'll take care of it myself. But would be helpful. This would be a little bit easier for me. But then rather than trusting... Right? We go right back to working and worrying. Don't you see? We're so prone to half-hearted obedience. Or how about this one? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Yeah, I'm not sure they're going to listen to me if I go. They don't look like the kind of people who would be responsive. Speak the truth in love. Yeah, I don't know that that's going to go over all that well. 
If you remain with me and my words remain with you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. Yeah, I know. But that seems extreme. Seems radical. You hear what I'm saying? So often we live our lives just like the Apostle Peter in ignorance and arrogance and half-hearted obedience. Our view is that if we've given it our best try and nothing's happened, then nothing can be done. Because we tried. It's like we're running around all the time singing that little song, Steve, Steve, he's our man. If Steve can't do it, no one can. And yet all the while, is it not true that our God reigns? The God of signs and wonders. Do you read your Old Testament at all? Right? Who, who spoke to Moses out of a burning bush, who turned the Nile to blood, split the Red Sea, caused bread to fall from heaven, and water to flow from a rock, all to bring his people out of slavery in Egypt and take them safely to the promised land. So our God is a signs and wonder-working God. In fact, context right here in Luke is that Jesus is teaching with all authority. He's healing the sick and he's casting out demons. And yet Peter's determined if they've done all they can, we toiled all night and nothing's happened, then nothing can be done. Do you see how that's ignorance and arrogance and half-hearted obedience? And yet he says, I will do as you say. Context doesn't make any sense to me, but I will let down the nets. And it's right there that the Lord Jesus does exceedingly abundantly beyond all that Peter could have ever thought or imagined. And isn't that how God works? I mean, this is literally the catch of a lifetime. So great that the nets begin to break. In fact, two boats are required both filled up, overflowing, and both begin to sink. Here's a question. How many fish do you think that was? Peter's half-hearted obedience is not met with a half-hearted response. Instead, Jesus, in his grace and in his mercy, pours out abundant kindness. And just think about that for a moment. Because Jesus could have brought in one fish, couldn't he? Right? He could have done that. He could have brought in one fish just to show Peter that he was wrong. <laughs> he could have done that. You said there'd be none, Peter. Look, there's one. He could have done that. He could have also just brought in a good catch just to show Peter that he controls the wind and the waves, the sea and everything in it, which would have been incredibly impressive. But he doesn't just bring in one fish, and he doesn't just bring in a good catch. Instead, he brings in two boatloads of fish, pressed down, filled up, and overflowing above and beyond what Peter could have ever hoped for or imagined. Do you see? 
Jesus didn't treat Peter as his sins deserved. So despite his ignorance, his arrogance, and his half-hearted obedience, Jesus pours out abundant kindness, grace upon grace. Because that's who Jesus is, and that's what God does, offering abundant, amazing grace in response to our sinfulness. Do you hear what I'm saying? That's the glory of the gospel. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And yet there's more. So moving from point one to point two, sinking boats to saving men. Because when Peter sees what happens, he falls to his knees. Look at verse eight. And he cries out and says, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Now, what exactly is that? Well, it's a confession of sin, isn't it? But why? Well, first of all, notice the change in how Peter addresses Jesus, right? He started out calling him master, but now he calls him Lord. That's the same word used to address the God of Israel. Verse 9 makes it absolutely clear that his confession is the direct response to what he just saw. For he and all who were with him were astonished at what? at the catch of fish that they had just taken. So Peter's not wondering here how a carpenter somehow seems to know where the fish are, as if he just got lucky. No, absolutely not. He's been fishing the Sea of Galilee his entire life, and he's never seen anything like this. So he knows that a miracle has just taken place. And only God performs miracles, signs, and wonders. So that means that Peter is now standing on holy ground in the presence of God himself. So the truth is, he's got good reason to be afraid. And why is that? Because sinful men die in the presence of of a holy God. I mean, just think about the high priests in the Old Testament. I mean, do you know they were only allowed to come into the Holy of Holies, the place where God dwelled, only one time a year, right? That took place on the Day of Atonement. And do you remember exactly how that worked? The high priest had very special clothes on that he would wear, Specifically for that event, the Day of Atonement, but that clothes included bells on his shoes and a rope around his waist. Now, why was that? Well, because sinful men die in the presence of a holy God, even when they're making an offering on behalf of other people. Right? So, so when he walked into the Holy of Holies, right, it would be ching, 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 ching. You heard the high priest was moving. And he would make an offering for the people. But if those bells stopped ringing, it meant that the priest had stopped moving and most likely was dead. That's where the rope comes in because the rope was used to pull him out. Why is that? Because sinful men die in the presence of a holy God. Therefore, sinful men, in their right minds, are terrified to be in God's presence. 
And Peter's in his right mind because he knows he's sinful and he knows that he's in the presence of God as a result of the miracle. And it causes him to fall on his knees and it causes him to plead with Jesus, depart from me. But now just look at how Jesus responds. Because he doesn't just move in and agree with Peter. Yeah, you're right. Peter, I agree with you. You are sinful. And then condemn him to judgment for all eternity, although that certainly would have been just and righteous to do, totally appropriate. Jesus doesn't just listen to Peter and abandon him, leaving him in his sin. Yeah, you're right, Peter. You are a sinful man, and I should depart from you and then depart. Instead, Jesus says, look again with me, verse 10, Jesus says to him, do not be afraid. What? Are you kidding me? Don't be afraid? That's what he says to him? See, you need to understand that's Absolutely astonishing response. Not only preserving Peter's life and not casting him into eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might, but then offering him comfort in the midst of fear. Do not be afraid. Because that's kindness instead of judgment. That's mercy instead of justice. So I want you to be absolutely clear. His response is amazing grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. It's amazing grace that saves sinful men. And by the way, how is that even possible? I mean, what warrant does Jesus have to say something like that to Peter? Do not be afraid. Already this early in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 5. Well, only by this, that he came on a mission to die for people's sins. So already in Luke chapter 5, Jesus has missile lock on the cross of Calvary, which won't happen, by the way, for another three years. Recorded in Luke chapter 23, where he will pay for every single one of Peter's sins, every act of ignorance, every attitude of arrogance, and every action of disobedience. Jesus will pay it all. Which is exactly what we celebrate on Good Friday. The reality of Christ's substitutionary death on the cross and those glorious words that we absolutely love. It is finished. God's wrath fully satisfied so Jesus can stand here and extend amazing grace. But not only the grace to bring comfort instead of judgment, but the grace to decide that now of all times is the best time to call Peter into the ministry. I mean, you have to stand back in awe and wonder at what Jesus is doing here. Because this entire event, if you will, is a living parable. I mean, taking a master fisherman out into the deep water of the Sea of Galilee just to command him to let down his nets for a catch, all to highlight Peter's ignorance and arrogance and half-hearted obedience, which then in turn highlights 
Jesus' amazing grace, blessing him with physical fish beyond all that he could ever think of or imagine, which again highlights Peter's sinfulness before a holy God. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And then Jesus' amazing grace in his response, do not be afraid. But then on top of all of that, the amazing grace to call him into the ministry right now, to employ him to share the same message of grace with people all over the world. By connecting all of those dots together, tying them all up into a beautiful package with a nice bow, Jesus saying to Peter, look at verse 10, from now on, you will be catching men. You will be a fisher of men, Peter. Jesus is the one who will not only abundantly bless physically, but spiritually. Beyond all that Peter could ever hope for or imagine. In fact, let me put it this way. How many fish do you think were in the boat that day? We don't know for sure, but how about 3,000? Why do I guess 3,000? Well, that's how many people responded to Peter's first sermon on the day of Pentecost. Right after Peter preached on the reality of sin, ignorance, arrogance, half-hearted obedience, which puts all of us in desperate need of a Savior. Acts 2.37 tells us, the people were pierced to the heart and cried out, what shall we do? To which Peter responds, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that day, we're told, 3,000 souls were added to their number who were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer. What exactly is that? Well, that's the start of the church. But then verse 47 says, the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So Peter will absolutely be a fisher of men, and the Lord will abundantly bless. But it still takes faith to follow Jesus. And that faith, true faith, as I've always says, say, looks like something. Jesus says it this way in Luke 9, 23. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it for all eternity. Now look again at verse 11. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. They left everything. Absolutely everything. And they made the decision, the conscious decision, to follow Jesus. 
Now, I want you to just think about that for a second. Because they had never seen a catch like this in their entire lives, right? Two boats full of fish, pressed down, filled up, and overflowing with fish to such an extent. There's so many fish in that boat that the boat is sinking. What does that mean to your American mind? Business has never been better, right? They've never experienced such a financial windfall. And yet, they weighed and they measured in like 2.5 milliseconds, and they decided that the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things was absolutely no comparison whatsoever to following Jesus. So essentially, Peter, like the Apostle Paul, said, I count everything as loss, absolutely everything, in comparison to knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Counted the cost, weighed and measured, and left everything to follow Jesus. And really, that's my hope. That's my prayer for every single one of us this morning. Because what Jesus did for Peter is exactly what Jesus offers to every single one of us. And we're called and commanded to respond, which is why I titled our application this morning, Savoring Christ. Sinking boats, saving men. Now number three, savoring Christ. So first and foremost, my hope and prayer is that you're amazed by grace. Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates, God demonstrates present tense. So right here, right now, God demonstrates in the present time his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, past tense, Christ died for us. So the good news of the gospel is only rightly understood in light of the bad news of our sin. So we're all sinners just like Peter who deserve God's wrath. In fact, Romans 3 says there's none righteous, not even one. No one who understands, no one who seeks for God, all have turned aside. Together we have become useless because there's none who does good. There's not even one. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And yet God in his infinite love and mercy in his amazing grace sent Jesus to take our sins upon himself and have them nailed to the tree. So I pray that if you haven't already taken Jesus up on his offer and experienced amazing grace for yourself, that you would do so right now, trusting in Christ alone, his finished work on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins and the hope of eternal life. Repent, believe, be saved. And if you've already done that, then I want to encourage you this morning to daily glory in that reality that he willingly took your sins. Be reminded of them, right? Your ignorance, your arrogance, your half-hearted obedience, your sinful thoughts, your wicked words, your wayward actions. He took all of them and he nailed them 
to the cross. Just like the old hymn says, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. That's amazing grace. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. O oh my soul. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. And forget not all his benefits. And as a result of being amazed by grace, be a faithful follower of Christ. Remember Luke 9.23, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. He must take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, he's the one who will save it for all eternity. So true faith requires that you count the cost. It requires that you weigh and you measure and that you make the decision wholeheartedly without apology to follow the Lord Jesus Christ for yourself. Not perfectly, but increasingly, progressively. And don't you think that Peter is a perfect example of that? Isn't he? I mean, he counted the cost, he weighed any measure, and he decided to leave everything. That's what it tells us in order to follow Jesus. No turning back. And yet, how did that go for Peter? <laughs> Stumbling and bumbling all along the way. At times, even denying the master who bought him to a servant girl because he was afraid. But in the end, he was a bold witness for the gospel, used mightily by God to be a fisher of men. So, beloved, be amazed by grace, be a faithful follower of Christ, and be a fisher of men. Because what I want you to see is that Peter's testimony is every Christian's testimony. Because God calls every single Christian to be a fisher of men. When he calls you to follow him, he doesn't say, hey, here's the fisher of men, and then you people go home and eat chips and sit on your couch and watch football. That's not what he does, right? He calls you, he saves you, and then he sends you out. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. He calls every single Christian to be a fisher of men. So that means Peter's testimony is just like my testimony, is just like your testimony this morning. He calls you to be a fisher of men. He calls you to love the people in your life enough to share the good news of the gospel with them. Now, there's a lot of different ways that you can do that. I mean, maybe it's through acts of kindness. You serve your neighbors so that you have an opportunity to share your testimony. Maybe it's through inviting people. Maybe you're like an like a, a invitation master. Like you're so good, you invite people to Bible studies, you invite them to church, and we give invitation cards. You're like a dispenser, sending them to people, right? Maybe that's how you do it, inviting people to Bible studies or to church. 
Or maybe it's through confessing your sin to the person who you're trying to share with. Maybe it requires you being honest, taking a chance, telling them openly, honestly, that you're a sinner saved by grace, that you're not perfect, that you don't have it all together, that you're a mess just like them. But your hope is not in yourself, but in the Lord Jesus and his finished work on the cross that they can be forgiven, that they can be redeemed, that they can be restored just like you, that they can be transformed by the good news of the gospel to live a life that is gloriously different than the world around them. By his grace, for his glory. Or maybe it's through street evangelism. Maybe that's your calling this morning, like Ray Comfort and Kirk Cameron Right, The convicting power of the law. Using the Ten Commandments to point people to their desperate need for a Savior and then calling them to Christ. But whatever the way, I'm absolutely convinced that if you're daily amazed by grace and you're faithfully following Jesus, then the Lord will use you to be a fisher of men. And please, 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 never say to me that God can't use you. Why do I say that? Because he took an ignorant, arrogant, half-hearted, obedient sinner like Peter, and he used him. in just one sermon to save 3,000 souls. And that's not just one example, right? But then he took an unbelievable group of what I would call misfit toys, right? Called the 12 disciples. And he used those guys to transform the world. So God can use you. And God will use you. If you're amazed by grace and you're faithfully following Christ, he will use you to be a fisher of men. He'll use you to work powerfully in the people's lives around you. God sovereignly saved you and God sovereignly places you with a unique Circle of influence. Your job, your family, your neighbors. That if you're amazed by grace, faithfully following Jesus, to speak to these specific people that they might hear about Jesus, repent, believe, and be saved the same way that God sovereignly worked in your life. That's the convicting power of grace. God's amazing grace. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found was blind, but now I see. To God be the glory. Great things he has done.
great things he is doing all through his amazing grace. Allow me to pray. Father, I pray that you'd be doing a good work here this morning. We know, Father, that the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to impact the people of God. And so, Father, we pray that through the preaching of your Word, you would be causing your people to be amazed by grace. Father, I pray for any who are here this morning who don't yet believe in the Lord Jesus, that they would be amazed by undeserved kindness, that even as they sit here in their ignorance and in their arrogance and in their half-hearted obedience, that they're being offered the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life. Father, I pray that you would move mightily, that they might repent, believe, and be saved. And Father, for my brothers and sisters in Christ, I pray that they would never get over the gospel. I pray that this morning, your amazing grace in their life would be crystal clear. That they would remember where it is that they've come from. And that they would know that they're, they're not here this morning in and of their own ability. But it's your ongoing work in their life. Father, cause us to be amazed by grace. Cause us to be faithful followers of Jesus. That your commands would not be burdensome to us but would be a delight to go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, that we would joyfully go, we would joyfully share, we would joyfully call people to repent and believe. Father, use us to be faithful fishers of men. Father, do that good work for our good and for your eternal glory, we pray. In Jesus' precious name. Amen.